Welcome. Josh Dixon is a positive psychologist. He is someone who has brought a lot of value to our community, particularly during the, diff the difficult first weeks of the lockdown. He gave some very interesting workshops where he talked about ways to organize your life in times of difficulty, how to overcome. And I think overcoming is one of his, uh, of his themes. So today we are going to do an AMA. Ask me or actually ask Josh anything. So any question that has to do with his expertise, which is the field of social, so, sorry, the, the field of positive psychology. Josh, why don't you explain us what this thing? Because I think I, but, I will butcher it. Oh, well, thanks, Nicholas. Yes, yeah, good to be back. I have been away from the scene for a while. But for directly. good reasons. Yeah, because I've got, I had twins and they're now very nearly two years old and every, life is just beginning to get a bit easier. Yeah, so my speciality fields are positive psychology, which is the science of human flourishing, addiction and trauma. Those are and depression. I'd say they were my main fields of expertise. And I'm very happy to give the best answers I can within reason, uh, under the caveat that this is not a, a, a therapy session. Of course, of course. Yeah. So let's jump to the question. Uh, questions, ask them via Super Chat and... Uh, I already have two. So the first question is, have you read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? If yes, any advice on how to overcome resistance? Are you familiar with that? I've book? never even heard of the book, so I can't, I have not, oh, okay. not read it. And I, and I don't know, but resistance in terms of procrastination type resistance? Mo yeah, or... so so Stephen Pressfield, it's, it's a great book, by the way, I've read it. So he has a, a quote which says something like, I used to have it as my, uh, my uh, in my screen, it says, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. So he calls resistance the, th when you know you have to do something, when you know it will be good for you, and yet for some reason you don't do it. And particularly it's very powerful when it comes to your calling. So resistance is not, oh, I'm bored to do the Excel. Resistance is, I know I have to do this thing. I know I have this symphony inside me, this book inside me. But for some reason, something stops me. Okay. that's a, that, that, There are many ways of looking at that. And it's a great question. Uh, I'm not going to answer for him, but I'll answer for, for myself when I see this. There, there can be many things going on here. One of them can be that you haven't actually got your values lined up. There are many examples where people think that this is what they want to do. They want to be the great painter or write the novel or yeah, people like the idea of things without ever having actually really practiced those techniques or arts or, or crafts. And so that can be an issue. I mean, Karen Rivich from the University of Pennsylvania does this great story of how she always used to tell everyone that she loves art and, you know, the, the whole sort of culture around art. And one time her, her, husband pulled her up and said that's just complete bs you never go to any art galleries you never read books about art you just like the idea of being into art and she's she was sort of rather put aback by that but actually said it was completely true and she really re-examined her values her values hierarchy and then pursued her career in psychology so it can be that your your values are misaligned it can be that you don't have clear goals and so it's, I want to write the book. Let's just use that as an, ex it's quite a good example because a lot of people if you meet want to write a book or they want to write a screenplay or a script. They seem to be sort of three main things that people talk about a lot. It can be, you don't have a clear goal in what is it you want to do. So 
So it's, it's bring clarity can often make things a lot easier. And within that comes this, this principle of what they call chunking, chunking goals. So you're, you split up because hopefully a lot of this audience will know we have limited space in our consciousness in our minds it's in objectivism they refer to the crow in general psychology they refer to working memory is how much you can hold in mind at once and it's five plus or two minus units so we have limited bandwidth and therefore we need to break things down into parts that we can hold in mind and a lot of people don't do this a lot of people are concentrating on the exhibition of their paintings before they've even painted a picture and then they can't hold in mind where everything's going to go and where's this picture's going to go and how am I going to hang everything and hold on a sec we need to take clear steps to getting towards that goal of the exhibition and breaking things down very much in the same way that the marathon runner doesn't think about the 26 miles they always break it down into the next mile and the next mile and the next mile because that's what you can hold in mind and have the cognitive wit to navigate the task at hand. If you're just completely maxed out, then you will go into form of paralysis. So that can be something, it can be a technical issue that I'm not able to break down, to have clear specific goals and break those goals into sub goals that allow me to get to my target. And then finally, it can be also an element of procrastination and boredom around something. It can be, and I know we've discussed this in the past, it can be just changing. There's this law called Parkinson's law, which is the amount of time to do something is, is directly related to how much time you allocate to it. And I use this example. Let's say you asked me to write a paragraph on what I got from objectivism. Say that was something I had to do for the ARU. And I, it had to be in on Sunday evening. And I'm like, okay, I've got all weekend to do that. Generally, it'll take me all weekend to do that even though it should only take five minutes. Whereas if I say to, I make a complete, I make a specific task. Okay, I'm gonna do that at 9.30 tomorrow morning and I have to have it done by 9.45, I'll do it. Because what I'm doing there is I'm raising the challenge. And what does raising a challenge of a situation do? It heightens anxiety and anxiety generates focus. So sometimes we don't have the focus, we don't have enough challenge in the task at hand. So we need to alter the parameters to raise that challenge without going too far beyond the challenge and getting into paralysis from the other anxiety paralysis. But when we when we set ourselves a small goal and target within a time frame, it focuses in our mind, and then we're much more likely to be able to to access the energy to do it. So there can be many things at play there of trying to 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 achieve our higher goals as a lot of people would call it. This reminds me, sense. yeah, it makes sense. And it reminds me the notion of the flow, which is something that I learned from you. And I, I learned, I read the book by Chick Sent Me High. Me high. Yeah. yeah. So, and you, you said that when you have something which is not very demanding, I will use the example of the Excel, of the Excel sheet, put a time frame on how you do it so that it's, it becomes a challenge. So something should not be very, very easy, but also something should not be impossibly difficult. So I was thinking about this. So uh, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one classes, boxing classes with someone who is a former champion. And we have been sparring every now and then. In six months, I haven't landed a single punch, not a single one. I've gotten a lot of punch. I haven't managed to land not one single punch. 
And at some point it becomes a bit demotivating because it's the level of difficulty. And actually, I know that if if we still do it for six months, odds are I still won't land a single punch because this guy, my teacher, is literally a champion. So in order to get to a flow, in order to get to the zone, there it has to be something which is challenging, but also you can do it if you put your best, uh, if you if you put your best self. So. What you said there reminded me this idea of the of the flow. That's that particular thing you're talking about within flow research and the subject of those, what we call the skills challenge balance. You have to be in that sweet spot between your abilities and the challenge at hand. If it's too challenging, you'll become paralyzed, paralyzed by anxiety. And if it's too easy, you become bored and unable to focus. So you've got to find that sweet spot. Good. Let's move with the questions. Thank you very much, by the way, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Marilyn. Thank you very much, David. You're very kind with your contributions. But also remember, you can ask questions. So another question from one of my of our friends. Some of your favorite positive psychology, sorry, some of, some of your favorite positive psychology exercises or tools or concepts? Question mark. So, give us some of your favorite exercises, tools, or concepts. That is a good question. I would say that I really like the new approach to gratitude that has has flooded the market. For a long time, people would write gratitude lists, and they would right at the end of the day, three things they're grateful for and, and, and why. And, and, and it kind of works. But most people I speak to, in my own experiences, it, it kind of wears off. It, it, it's not fully satisfying. It, it does something, but not enough. And I got this from Andrew Huberman, who was referencing a paper that came out last, last February, that actually we'd be doing gratitude all wrong how we should be practicing gratitude is actually focusing on a time when someone was grateful for you and you write about that experience and then, and it, it's one of those things that you think, ah, and then actually it's really obvious when you think about it, because what you're connecting to is generally a sense of self-esteem and pride. And the research around that seems to show that every time you connect to that, it, it, it's not transient like a lot of these other things. It doesn't wear off. Every time you connect to that moment, you get flooded with um, all those kind of feelings you're looking for when you're you're trying uh, all that you're generating a lot of positive emotion. That's the point of the exercise. So when you're, let's just say um, it was between me and you, and I was really grateful. Let's just say that I was really grateful because you got me into Ocon, something like that. And I wrote about it, and I wrote about all the value I got from Ocon and the value that of knowing you and the relationship and how that got me to that place and and so on and when i when i um you wrote i told you about that so you write that write down about that as your gratitude practice you're going to think okay yeah I, I did something of value it was a mutual value exchange josh is of value to me i wanted to share this with him dot dot dot, dot all the way along as far as you want to go with that, that will actually have a much more profound effect than it's still good to do. I'm grateful for Steve Jobs creating the iPhone. I'm grateful for Ayn Rand writing out the shrugged. I'm grateful for my health at the moment. Those are good things to connect to, but this, this big shift in the emphasis on, on gratitude, I've, I've found very interesting and, and very powerful. 
I think the other, another one that's a really powerful exercise is, and it directly shows the different, the relationship between value judgments and emotion is a technique called savoring where you really savor a memory. You could savor a, a memory from the past. So instead of savoring good wine or good food, you're savoring a memory. And what you do with that is you, you identify a time, maybe you know, it's the first time you went skiing or the first time you went out on a date with your wife or, or something like that. And you, you want to save the memories. So what you do is you really go into detail around that memory in a particular technique style, which is to identify the most positive image that goes with that memory. Then your most positive belief about yourself in relation to that memory. And then the, the, the body sensations that go when you connect with that. And it's extremely so let's let's give a concrete example. So you mentioned, yeah. let's say, your first uh, date with your then-to-be wife. So how would you break down these three? Yeah. So I I would I would think, okay, what's the image that represents the best of that memory? And I might say, oh, uh, seeing her as she came into the restaurant, looking beautiful. And then, what's your most positive belief about yourself? I'm loved or I could love, or I can value, maybe something along, whatever it is for you. And then what is it that you sense in your body when you connect to that? Oh, I get slight tingles up my spine and I feel warm excitement in my hands and my heart rate's gone up a bit and I feel excited. And there you have an exercise that in a very short amount of time, you, you've completely changed the way you feel in a, in a really positive way. You're, you're, you're emphasizing your values really going into it and, and, and generating a boost of positive emotion. And in mm -hmm. itself, that's a great thing to do, but it's also a great thing to do for your creativity. Um, it may be something you might want to do before you start writing or do, doing a creative process of painting, writing, drawing, or trying to come up with ideas. Because when we're flooded with positive emotion, we're much better at integrating things. So those would be two, two examples of, of, some so psychology activities techniques. so journaling but try this method where you focus on something that someone has appreciated in you and i know there's a lot of objectives party lives gonna say oh that's second handedness but i no, think but it, that it, in terms of gratitude it was always that you're always looking at something you're grateful for but they've actually shown it's much more powerful exercise when people are grateful to you mm -hmm. so it's actually right. it's about you it's about you yeah it's about the, the good you've done or the or the the value you've created and someone else has appreciated that value and the second is savoring savoring a savoring. memory and trying to remember what it was like you picture it how it made you feel and what's the sensation so, that you are experiencing not not how it made you feel it's it's identifying the most positive image and your most positive belief about yourself belief about yourself so how did it make you feel about yourself no no now when you connect to it now now it's now, always now. About, okay. it's always about now so when i connect to that image what's my most positive belief about myself now okay yeah and so and then all those all those great sensations that come from it Let's proceed because we have more questions. Thank you very, very much, Sosbot. The question is, teenagers are difficult to deal with. They struggle with their own psychological development. How much of that difficulty is due to hormones and how much is due to education or cultural influences? 
So hormones or cultural influences when it comes to teenagers being difficult to deal with pedagogically? Well, I'm not a developmental psychologist, but I can say, you know, having worked with a lot of teenagers in addiction rehab and having been a teenager myself and read a lot of literature, it's all of those things. You are going through during your pub. This is something that I was reading the other day during puberty, you're going through a bigger change, physiological, neurobiological change than at any point in your whole life, bigger than your first three years. So that's that's massive. And what what one of the big problems of being a teenager is you seem to have the adult capacity of emotion without the adult capacity of control of emotion. The prefrontal cortex is still not formed in a way to be able to control that emotion. You still you seem to have that tremendous amount of passion that can come out. Uh, it can come out very positively and it can come out very negatively. You know that's why teenagers can be incredibly violent. And they can be violently passionate as well and all sorts of things. So I think all those things have to be taken into account because there's a huge amount of brain change. Someone, I can't remember his name um, right now, but there is a quite famous book called The Brain the Wires Itself, something like that. Norman, Norman, some, Norman Deutsch, something like that. And he talks about during your teenage, adolescent years, you lose about a third of the connections in your brain as it starts to rewire into adulthood. So there's so many things going on at that time. Um, I think uh, being, a, being a teenager, I mean, I think particularly 14 is probably about the worst age there is. So there's also a lot of research about you know, teenagers and sleep and how much sleep they need and if they don't get enough sleep what a problem it is and that the amount of growth, you know, the growth spurts going on. I remember as a teenager, I used to faint a lot. Now it's just from growth spurts. You used to faint? Not, not faint. I used to get really bad head rushes and I'd have to lie down. Okay. And that was just from growth spurts. You know, that, and I remember that was a real classic teenage experience. So I when think you mentioned, you mentioned emotions, Romeo and Juliet, they are teens when they They're have these. teens, aren't they? They're yeah, like 14, yeah. 15. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I think uh, to answer the question, I think it's a combination of all those things. Right. Let's get to the next question. David, thank you very much for your contribution. And the question is, is it possible to be under anxiety and reason at the same time? Is it possible to be under anxiety and reason at the same time? I find it really difficult. My mind is going too fast to keep up. So what happens when you're under anxiety? Well, again, it's contextual. It would You can have mild anxiety and be super focused and super able to make decisions. And we often talk about in psychology this, this term of being within your window of tolerance. Be, be, sorry, sorry. For, the, for our friends and myself, actually... When we say anxiety, can you define what it is and how it's different from, oh, today I'm stressed, I have to give a talk? Well, I would never use that term. I would First, I'd always say that how anxious you are. And anxiety is caused by being flooded with norepinephrine in the brain. And it just depends on the level and the amount that is being released is determining whether you can focus. Because it is a focusing neuromodulator as much as anything else. But if you become 
it depends on the level of threat or perceived threat. There's so there's so many factors at play there. I'm afraid it's really hard to answer that question. But I would say, depending on the level of anxiety, sometimes anxiety is excellent for focusing and reasoning. And when it goes, you're too flooded, then forget about it. Then that's when you need to learn certain techniques to bring yourself back within what we call the window of tolerance. And the 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 most successful intervention so far we know about is called the the physiological sigh. And to reduce anxiety levels in the, the quickest amount of time, what you do is you take in as big a deep breath as possible, pause at the top, and then take it even more, and then breathe out. Do that a few times, and that will reduce your anxiety faster than anything else. And it's, um, it's, it's to do with giving a double signal to the lungs to release more CO2, which is one of the causes and buildup of anxiety. Because when we get anxious, our breathing gets very um, dysregulated. And shallow. And shallow. And then that causes buildups of CO2 and so on. So the physiological side, Google it, it's the most effective method of reducing anxiety that I know about and many people know about at the moment. Okay, so what people say, you know, that take deep breaths, turns out there's a very specific and scientific explanation behind it. Yeah, but it's not, it's take, again, you've got to be, you've got to be careful about what kind of breathing you're doing. Yeah, if I say take deep breaths and go, <laughs> no, forget about it. But you've got to take in a deep breath and another and then breathe out. Do that four or five times and you'll see a noticeable difference to your anxiety level. It's not going to, it's not going to fix the problem of the anxiety, but it's going to give you a chance to, to make a difference. Right. Let's move on. Uh, we need to stop at 30 past, but we still have some time and some questions. So another friend asks, how can you prevent yourself from, quote, getting triggered? How can you, be, how can you get better at controlling your emotions? There's a lot there, but if we just start with being triggered, uh, again, one would be remove yourself from the environments that trigger you. I know it sounds really obvious, but that can be one. Another one could be learning specific techniques to reduce your emotional response in, in the moment. So, for example, like the physiological sigh, things like coherent breathing, where you're bringing balance to your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So that's breathing in for five seconds and breathing out for five seconds through your nose. That's the optimal breathing rhythm. Six, six breaths in a minute. That'd be one way of doing it. One would be to... Well, you're, it, you're really asking what are the, all the resilience tools that are out there? And there are so many. Um, certain mindfulness techniques, uh, allowing yourself to form a sort of third-person perspective of what's going on, imagining you're on a train looking through the window of what's happening. There's, there's all sorts of techniques. Um, wearing an elastic band around your wrist and pinging it to bring you back into the present, clapping your hand, drinking some water. Those would be all sorts of in-the-moment techniques that you can use to, to lower your capacity for being triggered. And then there are uh, re-evaluations of situations. Can have. So you want to be doing, you want to have a bunch of techniques that you can use in the moment, and then you want to be doing sort of deeper work outside of that. It's a bit like what, what techniques do we have playing sport where well, we have to play the sport we have to train we have to do gym and the same thing applies to to the mind we have to practice as well 
So a good meditation practice can be really helpful. Again, as long as it's a sort of a sort of one of the more sort of evidence-based mindfulness practices, as opposed to some kind of more woo-woo form of meditation. Mm -hmm. I don't okay. know, really simple, really another really simple thing. Make sure you're well hydrated and you've had good sleep. They were two of the most important things. Right. Sleep could be the focus of a whole of a whole uh, episode. Okay, penultimate question. We have four more minutes. So Rat asks. Sorry, Rat Lover asks. And thank you for your contribution. I think dealing with anxiety is very tough. Coherent breathing is a great idea. Also thinking to yourself, if my feelings could talk, what would they say I think can help? So naming your feelings, Josh, is that uh, something that you'd find useful? I'm not quite sure what that means, naming your feelings. If you're naming the anxiety, then I'm, that's my emotional response. I think it's really important just to really look at under the hood of what, what is it I'm anxious about? Is it a rational or irrational fear? What can I do about it? Do I have the full context? That's usually what is at play when people are anxious. They don't have the full context. And when you're able to get to the full context, either through careful evaluation, sometimes through um, therapy with someone else to help you get there, um, that that's something we need to look at but we always have to look at the cause of the anxiety a, a lot of people just sort of will say to me you know, I'm really anxious without understanding why they're anxious or that all of our emotions are due to valid prior value judgments so we have to we have to look at those what are my value judgments and is there anything I can do to work with those so a lot of CBT is is excellent for that Thank you very much, Marialen. We really appreciate always your contributions. Uh, last question, unfortunately, no more time. So you mentioned meditation. Uh, what's your opinion on guided meditation? So most people, the way they do meditation is they download the app like Calm or Headspace, and it has guided meditation. And the question is, can you really meditate and achieve the benefits of meditation where someone is talking to you so isn't it a bit like you're consuming content like a podcast at the end of the day i i personally much prefer guided meditations to the other forms of meditation meditation is all mindfulness is all about awareness and it's a it's 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 about increasing one of the key takeaways from a good meditation practice is improving your focusing skills and listening to a guided meditation is one form of doing that it's it's listening and really taking on board what they're saying sometimes it's this if you're looking to be calm sometimes someone else's voice can be very calming it really depends on your goal and type of guided meditation as well is it a body scan is it something that's looking at the nature of your thoughts is it something that's about trying to relax all your muscles so again what's my goal and then what's the tool i want to use to achieve that goal that's the way around i i look at meditation and the different forms of meditation but I find a lot of value in guided meditation, 100%. Just depends on what my goal is. All right. That's that's actually helpful. So, Josh, I want to thank you for these uh, 30 minutes that you gave us because there was some good content. Personally, what I'm taking away from this. So, meditation and journaling are the two things that I've never been able to stick with. But 
I'll give it another try because I know they're good for me or I can see why they could be good for me. So I mean, I'm, I'm inspired to, to give them another chance. And with journaling, also try this method that you mentioned and also try the savoring method, which it's the second time these days I hear the term savor. Uh, an objectivist uh, intellectual that I really respect told me the other day that in the morning, they have this thought that says, savor the day, but savor not just carpe diem, but in this day, enjoy everything the world has to offer in terms of all your senses, the seeing, the smelling, the listening. So savoring and uh, let's let's see. Actually, I know this is resistance. I know that these things would be good for me, and for some reasons, I'm not. I'm not doing them. So I will repeat. I will listen to the to the, your first answer to our friend who asked about resistance, and uh, I'll try to implement most of these things in my daily life because I know they would be good for me if only they became part of my routine. Josh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your Pleasure. time here. Where can people find more about you? I've seen. I've seen your active on some social media you post some short clips where can people follow you best place is probably instagram which is resurface uk um and you can always email me info at resurfaceuk.com and you can look at our website resurfaceuk.com go good so let's put resurface also at the description of the video so people can follow josh thank you very much josh Pleasure thanks everyone take care have a good weekend bye-bye okay bye